Today we're wrapping up our message series, uh, which was called Make Your Mark. And you may remember that at uh, one point I said that it's difficult for you to make a mark in this world until God has made his mark on you. This series has been about how we as a church and how we as individuals can live in such a way that we actually make a difference in this world. And I know that sometimes uh, we don't think we make much of a difference, but I would suggest to you that as we live out our lives as Christ followers, we do make a difference, perhaps not uh, impacting the entire world, but certainly impacting people uh, that we come into contact with. And hopefully you've been challenged to adopt eight key values to implement these ideals into your life and to use them as a foundation uh, for all you do in your service to others. But I'm going to take you back, if you haven't been here for all of them, just to see where we've been so far. And uh, in week number one, we saw that Peter summarized the life of Jesus in one phrase. And the phrase was, he went around doing good. In other words, it's all about serving other people. So that's the first key in making your mark, to go around doing good at every opportunity. Now, in week two, we saw the power of unity and the importance of creating common ground with other people. Or what I've often referred to as learning how to build relationships between yourselves and others that ultimately Jesus can cross over. And so being of one mind doesn't mean that we all have the same opinion, but that we all seek the same big picture. In week three, we talked about how to master the Christian life, and that is by never letting go of the basics. I don't know if you ever thought about what you wanted on your tombstone when you died. At one time, I thought other than my name and, you know, when I was born and when I passed and stuff like that, I wanted to just put three words on it, and that was just worship, Bible, study, and prayer. Because those are part of the basics of the Christian life. But in the Christian life, actually, the way up is the same way in, and that is that you are saved by grace and you grow by grace. In week number four, um, we talked about how Jesus must be at the center of all that we do. In other words, make your life, make your mission, and make your message all about Jesus. In week number five, we talked about evangelism. And that is, um, which is not like some sort of a high-pressure sales pitch, but more like a conversation between you and friends. And so when the Spirit leads... And the door opens, you just start the conversation, and you tell the story. You tell his story and your story. Now, it's really sharing a testimony. The interesting thing is there are a lot of people who think that they don't have a testimony. But all of you have a testimony of one kind or another. you probably got many different testimonies that you could talk about. In week six, we talked about life without borders. Uh, that we put no limitations on what we're willing to do for God uh, or what we're willing to have God do uh, through us. So we talked about love without borders, faith without borders, obedience without borders, no limit to where we will go or who we will reach for the glory of Jesus Christ. Now, last week, we talked about experiencing God's power. Uh, Without God's power, life eventually begins to unravel. With God's power, however, life is an absolute adventure. Uh, I've been writing a book about my life for I don't know how long. I've always wanted to call it Just the Dumb Kid from Nebraska because that's all who I ever really considered myself to be. 
but it's amazing to me sometimes when I look back at my own life and I, I sit there, uh, for example, in Nigeria on a platform ready to speak to somewhere between 250 to 300,000 Nigerians and wondering, what does some dumb white kid from, from America have to say to a quarter of a million black people? And what kind of a sense of humor does God have, really? Well, God basically looks down at me and says, well, you're the one who said, uh, whatever you want, you're ready to go. Guess what, buddy? It's now your turn. See, sometimes we just need to ask God to fill us with the power of the Holy Spirit so that you can be a difference maker in the lives of other people. And that brings us to today's message. And we're going to be looking at Acts chapter 2, which is the story of Pentecost. Now, you may recall that last week we... Uh, heard Jesus say to his followers in Acts chapter 1, verse 4, Do not leave Jerusalem, but wait for the gift my Father has promised, which you heard me speak about. Now, today we're going to talk about that gift being actually delivered and the difference that it makes in the lives of the disciples. And understand Pentecost, which we celebrated here in church weeks back, this was about six weeks after Jesus' resurrection. He had appeared to them several times. Uh, he had given many convincing proofs that he was actually alive. I mean, they touched him. Uh, he ate uh, fish dinner with them. Uh, he talked about the kingdom of God and what their purpose would be, what their mission in life would be. But now, as we saw last week, he said, this knowledge that I rose from the dead was not enough. They needed to know more about more than just the resurrection and God's word. They needed power from on high. And on the day of Pentecost, we know what happened. They received that power. Now, Pentecost, if you may remember from past sermons in your life or your own study, uh, was the harvest festival. And it was that time of the year when tens of thousands of people would show up in Jerusalem, uh, Jews and Jewish converts, uh, Gentiles, I guess, would show up at Jerusalem. Uh, so the city was packed with people from all over the known world. And at this as this was happening, the followers of Jesus were meeting together behind locked doors still. They were waiting, they were watching, they were praying, and then, well, we oftentimes say all hell broke loose, but we know that's not what happened. All heaven broke loose. There was a sound of a mighty rushing wind. It filled the house. There were these flames of fire that appeared on the tops of the heads of each person, and they all began to speak in other languages. Now, the Bible says they began speaking in tongues, but understand that Greek word glossolalia really means known languages. Not the unknown language, for example, of angels, but in actual languages that were known and spoken throughout the world. Now, no doubt this whole commotion of the wind blowing uh, drew people's attention to this upper room. And as the disciples then suddenly spilled out into the streets, people heard them speaking in these obscure and distant languages that ordinarily would be known only to those people who came from all of these different places. You know, that day it talks about they came from Pamphylia and Phrygia and Cappadocia and all of these strange places. And they said, how can this be? These are Galileans, which is another way of saying these are simple country people. But we hear them speaking in the languages of our homeland. And then the next line in the text really, 
I always thought meant there were Lutherans there because they said, what does this mean? Uh, but I seriously doubt there were Lutherans back at that point. Now, some people dismiss the entire thing by saying what? The disciples were drunk. Now, this is not uncommon, to be quite honest. Not, not drunkenness. I'm just saying it's uncommon. This is, un- this is not uncommon. This is how people respond to virtually anything that is miraculous. It's kind of with a condescending sneer and an explanation that, that doesn't even make sense. I don't know about you, but drunk people don't start speaking languages they've never heard before. In fact, uh, drunken people can barely speak their own language. Uh, and to say that the disciples were drunk uh, shows they weren't willing to give a fair and honest evaluation of what was going on. They just wanted to ridicule these rednecks from Galilee. And guess what, friend? It's not much different in 2015. Uh, When God moves in a mighty way among his people, accomplishes great things among us, many people are inclined just to dismiss it. It's insignificant. Instead, they just want to mock and ridicule people of faith. But Peter stands up that day and says, no, folks, we're not drunk. In fact, he reminds it's only nine o'clock in the morning. See, what you're seeing, he said, is this fulfillment of an ancient prophecy that was spoken by the prophet Joel, in which he told us that in the last days, he said, and by the way, these are the last days, God promises to pour out his spirit upon all people and promises to perform great and mighty works and promises that all who call on him will be saved. And then Peter preached about Jesus' death. He preached about the resurrection and the crowd Deeply convicted, asked, what, what, must, what must we do? And that, to that you see from Acts chapter 2, 38, Peter said, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins, and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Now, i got to tell you, Luke uh, basically admits that he's giving us the Cliff Notes version of the sermon. I don't know if you ever noticed that. He tells us that he summarized it, but Peter actually had a whole lot more to say. Uh, Luke wrote in verse 40, uh, with many words he did testify and exhort. Uh, But that's the King James Version. Uh, The New Living Translation says a little bit more clearly, then Peter continued preaching for a long time. Uh, The end result of that preaching of a long time was that 3,000 people were saved and baptized into the church that day. When was the last time 3,000 were baptized here on a Sunday? Have there been 3,000 people baptized here in the history of this church? Probably not. I can remember at our previous church in Texarkana, people were absolutely astounded one Sunday when I baptized two babies on the same Sunday. They'd never seen that either. I couldn't even begin to tell you what the most people is that I've ever seen baptized at any one time, but it's nowhere close to 3,000. But see, just a short time before, Jesus had given his, his followers what suddenly didn't seem so much like the Great Commission, but more like Mission Impossible, which is to go into the entire world and make disciples of all nations. So, but you have to ask yourself, how could this motley crew of undereducated, underfunded, underachievers ever hope to be able to pull that off? Well, it's only, it's only possible through the power of God. 
And so Jesus says, go out to the whole world. But before you go, he said, stay, wait. Wait for the power that's going to come from on high, because apart from me, you can do nothing. Through me, all things are possible. See, there is no limit to what God can do. Now, when you see that and you hear me say that, I'm sure that all of you would agree with me. There is no limit to what God can do. After all, God is all-powerful, or that word omnipotent, omnipotent, all-potent. That's true. We all know it. But today I'm going to add two words to that phrase that will take it from the realm of theoretical to the reality of the practical, and here it is. There is no limit to what God can do through you. See, if you truly believe that statement uh, with a two-word addendum, your life will be different, and and I guarantee it. See, when Peter was quoting the prophet Joel, this is exactly what he was saying. He said, God is not just the God of the elite. God is the God of everyone. Everyone has a part, everyone has a place in the kingdom. In fact, in verses 17 and 18, uh, it says, In the last days, God says, I will pour out my spirit on all people. Your sons and daughters will prophesy. Your, old, your young men will see visions. Your old men will dream dreams. Even on my servants, both men and women, by the way, and people probably gasped when they heard that, I will pour out my spirit in those days and they will prophesy. Now, here's where the word to comes into play. T-O-O. Too many people believe that they can never be used by God in a great way. Either because of who they are or because of something they've done. But I'm here to tell you this morning, it just plain simple ain't true. If you say I can't be useful to God because I'm too old, it's not true. If you say, I can't be useful to God because I'm too young, it's not true. If you say, but I'm too poor, it's not true. I've never heard anybody say I'm too rich, but if you say you're too rich, guess what? It's it's not true. If you say, uh, but I'm a woman, it's not true. If you say, but I'm a person of color, well, it's not true. If you say, but I have no education, it's It's not true. And if you say there's too much in my past, it's not true. You get the point? I mean, you're never too old or too young. You're never too rich. You're never too poor. You're never the wrong color. You're never the wrong gender. And you're never the one with too much of a past. And you're never too late to get in on what God wants to do through his grace that he wants to shower upon you. When it comes to being used by God, you're never to nothing if you're only willing for him to work through you. I should probably add the word to also. See, today I'm going to take a little bit of a look at Peter's sermon. And I want to draw a couple of things to your attention that we sometimes use as excuses to place limits on ourselves And even in some cases, to place limits on other people. And I would say sometimes even to place limits on our very own church. Now, some of these ideas that I'm going to suggest this morning uh, may rattle a few people. But don't take it up with me. When you get to heaven someday, talk to Peter and talk to Joel. The very first limitation is gender. And 
Peter said, your sons and daughters will prophesy. And then he said, even on my servants, both men and women, I will pour out my spirit in these days and they will prophesy. God is saying through Joel and Peter that all people are created equal and that all people have a place and a role to play in the kingdom of God. That's a little bit touchy subject because we're talking denominationally in some cases right now. But there are some churches today who would never, ever give a woman the title of pastor or the title of elder, which is the case in our denomination. And there are sound scriptural reasons for that. But I've worked closely with, with a lot of churches like this. But one thing I have observed in churches that I have read about, studied about, heard about or attended is this, that the foundation of many, if not most, churches in America, the foundation were, was the godly and dedicated women who kept things going and made things happen week after week after week. You know, some of the most effective teachers who taught, and I would include my wife who for many years taught women's Bible studies at churches where we're at, but the most effective teachers who taught and helped people in their, disciple, in their discipleship walk were women, whether it was in Sunday school or vacation Bible school or whether it was in Bible classes or whether it was in LWML or whatever you, want, you have. The most effective ministry projects and outreach efforts were often fueled by the hard work of dedicated women who could have cared less about having any title, but only wanted to serve the God that they love. Now, a couple of years ago at a pastor's conference, I heard a pastor say as he was speaking against the charismatic movement, he said, take women out of the charismatic movement and you'll end that movement. Now, he meant it as an indictment. But I sat there and I thought, man, if you take the women out of any church, even decidedly non-charismatic churches, which by and large are LCMS churches, you will impede or slow down the progress of effective mission and ministry efforts. See, friends, titles and labels are insignificant compared to actual accomplishments. I mean, our God places a much higher value on what you actually do as opposed to what other people say about you. I mean, so no matter who you are, son or daughter, male or female, you have an opportunity to be used by God in a great way, even when other people say, well, sorry, you're too female. You're the wrong gender. The second limitation is this. It's age. <clears throat> we, have, we either have a tendency to say, well, we're too young or we're too old. Uh, we're either, it's too early or it's too late for us to accomplish anything in life. Now, this last week I had coffee with a 25-year-old pastor, an aspiring pastor. i got to tell you something, that really impresses me. Quite honestly, I'd have made a terrible pastor at age 25. I had a lot of rough edges to knock off me before I ever became a pastor at age 40. I mean, being a pastor at such a young age has its challenges. Uh, they haven't quite yet developed all of the wisdom sometimes that the job requires, and sometimes we'll probably make a lot of mistakes along the way. But then again, I, I know a lot of 20-somethings whose lives are more about video games than anything else. But here's a guy with the desire and the drive to lead people on their spiritual journey. And then on the other end of the spectrum, I think about some guys 
who are still preaching 40 to 50 times a year when they're 70 or 80 or beyond. Uh, Training pastors and teachers when they could have just been retired. You're never too old. You're never too young. The third limitation is race. Peter emphasizes that God said he will pour out his spirit on what? All people. All people. In the first century, there was a mindset um, among many Jews that they were God's chosen people and that Gentiles or people of other races or colors were at best second class citizens and could never be considered as an equal. And among Gentiles, the same attitude was somewhat prevalent regarding the Jews. They thought the Jews were nothing special either. And throughout history, people have always been able to find a a reason to disregard people who are different from themselves, and they've used it as an excuse for slavery. They have used it as an excuse for oppression. And in contrast, God makes a point here in Acts chapter 2, as he has many, many times in Scripture, that he is not the God of just a few people. He is the God of all humankind. Do you ever wonder who does a pastor's funeral? I mean, I've been asked whether I do my own wife's funeral. I said, well, certainly. I mean, who would know her better than me? But who would do mine? And I got to thinking, who would I, which pastor would I want to do my funeral? And my wife knows the answer to this. I can think about three or four pastors that I would love to have to do my funeral, and they're all locked up in Angola prison. And guess what? They're all black. I asked Warden Kane. I said, if I should die... Could you send Pastor Sidney? Or could you send Pastor Ron? I mean, could you send people like that? He said, I'll send the whole prison gospel band, which is all black. Well, I never really thought about that. But you know, guess what? It doesn't make any difference. I mean, does it? Not in our heart of hearts, not in our belief. Or what? We just need to remember it doesn't make any difference what, your, what color your skin is or what your ethnic heritage is. I mean, who cares whether you're German or Russian or whether you're Kenyan or whether you're Australian or or whatever you are? Uh, All people are equally God's people, and God can use them in amazing ways. That's why you read that passage, Galatians 3.28. There is neither Jew nor Gentile, neither slave nor free, there is male or female, for what? You are all one in Christ Jesus. Now, the fourth limitation we often use is class. Sometimes lack of class, I guess. I mean, when the Holy Spirit uh, began speaking through the disciples, the common reaction was this. Utterly amazed, they asked, aren't these who are speaking Galilean? Now, guess what? That's not a compliment. Galileans in the first century culture could best be compared to uh, hillbillies or rednecks. They were more likely to be of mixed heritage, probably biracial, who spoke Aramaic, the language of that day, with kind of a lazy twang, often dropping the consonants in their words. They lacked big city sophistication. They lived out in the hills. They lived out in the sticks somewhere. Uh, They were not Jerusalem people. Uh, They were considered to be lax overall in how they followed or practiced Judaism. Uh, They certainly were not expected to be articulate, and for heaven's sakes, they were not bilingual. 
let alone multilingual, yet God was speaking through these hillbillies, these regnets, these Galileans, and he continued to speak through them and use them in order to establish his church throughout this world. Now, friends, please understand, it doesn't, make, it doesn't matter what you don't have in terms of privilege or education or resources. God does not see what you don't have. All God sees is what you can be. Now, here's the fifth and maybe the greatest limitation. It's the past. This is the one that I see, I, I think, more than anything else. Uh, people who would say, but, Pastor, you don't understand how much I've sinned or how many mistakes I've made. Uh, you don't understand how many opportunities I have squandered or blown. Uh, it, Pastor, it's just too late for me. The first thing that comes to mind is the thief on the cross. I mean, this guy was so bad that he was going to be crucified. I mean, this is like being sentenced to the, you know, sentenced to death in the electric chair or lethal injection. I mean, this guy was a bad guy, but guess what? On the cross, he said, Lord, remember me in your kingdom. And Jesus said, truly, I say to you, today you'll be with me in paradise. It's never too late. I mean, Peter reminds us that God said in everyone and everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. No matter what your life was like before God, God has the power to turn around. I mean, God is the God of second chances. Any of you here ever had a second chance? God's also the God of third chances. Any of you had to go through that? Or the fourth chance or the fifth chance? Or maybe you're already up to go and got the 17 chances. I don't know, but he's still the God of that Next chance. Now, I want you to see that what Peter uses the phrase, will be saved, that yes, he's talking about the salvation experience in which you accept Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, and you're transferred from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light, and you receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. But he's talking about the moment of salvation, but he's really talking about so much more here. When he says, you will be saved... He's really talking about the totality of your life. He's talking about the work of God that begins on the day of your salvation, whether it was at the baptismal font X number of years ago, or whether it was at a Billy Graham crusade, or however you came to know Jesus Christ, your Lord and Savior. And it is finally brought to completion when you stand before the throne of God and when he says, well done, good and faithful servant. See, he's talking about the process of Christ being formed in you, that justification process and then you being conformed in him, that sanctification process, when he says you'll be saved, he's not just talking about punching your ticket to heaven. He's talking about your lifelong journey to become more and more like Jesus. Now, here's the lesson I think we learned from Peter's Pentecostal sermon. We have a tendency to say, I mean, all of us do. I'm too young. I'm too old. I'm too poor. Uh, I'm too country, uh, I'm too bad, I'm too this or I'm too that to ever play an important role in the kingdom of God. But God would say to you, um, there's no limit to what um, can be done. I don't see who you aren't. I only see what you can be. As far as I'm concerned, you'll never be too nothing to be a part of my kingdom. I mean, if you if you will surrender your life to him day by day, 
day in, day out. He says, I can do great things through you, and you'll actually leave a dent in this universe. I mean, not only will your life be great, you'll experience some heaven here on earth, but you'll, you will touch the lives of other people around you. Through me, you can make your mark. Now, sometimes as believers, we're not quite sure that we can make our mark. This last week has been kind of a tough week in our country, right? There's some things that happened that have caused some people to think, oh no, the end is near. We're down the drain. We're down the tank. There are some people today who are happy as clams at high tide. They think this is the greatest thing ever to happen. There are some people in the middle who, they don't even know what to think. I debated about what I'd even say about this today, and I'm I'm not going to even get into the whole detail. I'm not here to talk about a political message of one kind or another. Uh, But I I want to just share something briefly, kind of in closing, because it has to do with making a mark. In uh, my regular Bible reading in the morning, uh, I'm up to First and Second Timothy. And this last week, I saw two different Bible passages, and I had marked them. And I went back to look at them. But if you take Second Timothy chapter four, verse two, which talks about be ready in and out of season to give the answer for why you have the hope. And if you take First Timothy chapter one, verse five, which talks about loving all people, you can come, you can put those two Bible passages together. And make kind of a handy little model. Now, on my tombstone, I hope it says, see the vision, live the mission, feel the passion. But if you want something else on your tombstone or something else on your business card, maybe you could do well by just putting these words, teach the truth and love well. I think that's the message that we need as believers today. Teach the truth. What else are you going to teach? I mean, don't argue, don't get angry, don't get mad. Just teach the truth. And where is the truth? Here it is. Jesus even says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. You want the truth on any subject? It's right there. Teach it and live it. And the second thing is just love well. Take your blinders off and realize that there are a lot of strange people in this world. You love them anyway. Don't need a testimony, but I think you all got family members. Some of them are just a little bit off-center. I'm being kind about it. You love them anyway. Some of you got kids that you just don't understand. You love them anyway. Some of you are sitting next to people that are just, love them anyway. Uh, I had somebody ask me one time, I says, are there people in your church that you don't like? Well, no. There are a lot of people in church, I don't like what they're doing. But I love them anyway. We need to do that. Teach the truth and love well. And in this day and age, as we approach a culture, and believe me, this is a culture that does not share our biblical values, it does not share our standards of conduct, 
You and I, as Christ followers, still need to model love and pray for those with whom we disagree. And if you want a biblical reason for it, well, this is what Jesus taught. You can go back and read Matthew chapter 5:44. And as our culture, the one that we live in today, begins to look more and more like that of the New Testament times, we need to remember and take heart that the message and the ministry of Jesus was birthed and flourished in such times. And I just pray that God will do it again in our lifetime as we teach the truth and as we learn to love well. May God bless that in Jesus' name. Amen.